Welcome to Specs Speak Science, the scientific podcast hosted by a rotating cast of chemists and industry experts. From highlighting the hidden chemistry in our everyday lives to discussing relevant industry topics, Specs Speak Science looks to deliver informative content to the scientific community. With that, please enjoy this installment of Specs Speak Science. Welcome back to our podcast. We're going to continue with the discussion of heavy metals in our environment and how we're exposed to it. As we said in the last podcast, there are many routes of exposure to heavy metals. You have the injection route, uh, inhalation, this is your air quality, your indoor and outdoor air pollution, any drugs, pharmaceuticals, and a, a big exposure are cigarettes and e-vapes and things like that. Transdermal comes through the skin, accidental exposure, drugs, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, and also ingestion through your food, through your water, through your pharmaceuticals, and any accidental exposure. And these sources can be either intentional, unintentional, or somewhere in the middle, like a quasi-intentional. Unintentional sources are natural sources. They're elemental deposits. Some places in the United States and in India, there are natural deposits of arsenic. So if you tap into the water supply, you're actually being exposed to the natural arsenic from uh, being leached from elemental deposits. And you also have bioaccumulation. Intentional are things like direct intent. So a farmer intentionally applies a heavy metal pesticide or a uh, company intentionally adulterates or counterfeits a product and adds a heavy metal or a toxic substance to a product. Or they add too much of something they're approved for, but they added a lot more than it's supposed to be. Then you have that kind of middle ground, that quasi-intentional. These are by products of human activities, either current or historical. It could be cross-contamination. So farmer A has a field which he does not apply pesticides, but farmer B next door does apply pesticides, there's wind, there's water, and there's cross-contamination. You also have quasi-intentional, where the processing of different grains and things like that introduce metals into them just by the processing equipment. Today we're going to look at the two heavy metals, mercury and arsenic. Mercury is famous for bioaccumulation in seafood. You hear about not eating certain fish because of mercury accumulation. But it's also the byproduct of industrial applications, the refining of silver. It's historically been used in fillings, cosmetics, historical medicines. Um, mercury was a seed dressing at the turn of the century, so farmers would buy seeds that were treated with mercury to keep away the, the rats and the rodents. Then we have arsenic. Again, bioaccumulation, it could be accumulated in seaweed, it can be accumulated in rice. We'll talk about rice in a little while. It uh, sometimes is seen as a nutrient. It's found in elements deposits in India, in the western U.S., and South America. It's historically a pesticide, so um, lead arsenate was often applied to different fields and orchards to treat the trees so they would not be infested. It's also a byproduct of lead production. And small amounts of arsenic are used in traditional and modern medicine. When we talk about how toxic a heavy metal is, or any metal, we're basically talking about species toxicity. Which form of the heavy metal are we talking about? Which species of heavy metal? 
Now, toxicity is, is affected by how well it's absorbed. So if it uh, binds real well to a, an active site in the body, then it's very bioavailable and then it's very toxic. It's also affected by distribution. Can it cross the biological barriers? Can it cross the blood-brain barrier? Can it cross through the intestines? If it can't cross, then that actually reduces the toxicity because it becomes less bioavailable and the body rejects it. Then biotransformation. That's when the body accumulates and modifies uh, different heavy metals. Now, if it modifies it and excretes it, it means less toxicity. But if it incorporates it, then it becomes more toxic. Now, traditionally, when we talk about heavy metals, we're talking about uh, cadmium, chromium, lead, mercury, and arsenic. Now, a level of concern is called the LD50. That's the median lethal dose. And that means at that point, it will be lethal to about 50% of the population. Now, mercury and some of the other heavy metals, the inorganic mercury is not as uh, high uh, LD50 as the organic mercury. So organic mercury tends to be very toxic, and inorganic mercury salts tend to be less toxic. That's why you can see, or elemental mercury, you see uh, people playing around with elemental mercury, rolling it from palm to palm. That's an inorganic mercury. It has a higher LD50, anywhere from 6 to 200 ppm, so it's a, a fairly high amount. Organic mercury, though, is a, a different animal altogether. Its LD50 is 50 micrograms per kilogram, which is PPB level. And there was a, a very famous case of scientific mercury poisoning. There was a professor of chemistry at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Her name was uh, Karen Wetterham, and she uh, died in 1997 due to mercury poisoning. <clears throat> she studied mercury ions and the way they interacted with DNA repair proteins, and she died at the age of 48 doing, uh, due to accidental exposure to dimethylmercury. So she was uh, working with dimethylmercury in her lab, and she was taking all the standard safety precautions. She was working in a hood. She had someone there to help her. She was wearing a lab coat and glasses and latex gloves. And she was transferring from an ampule this uh, dimethylmercury into a sampling tube. And inadvertently, she did not realize, but she had spilled uh, one or two drops of this dimethylmercury from the tip of a pipette onto her latex-gloved hand. She really didn't think she was in a lot of danger. She took off her gloves. She washed her hands. Uh, and then she continued on with her experiment. She didn't think she was any immediate danger. She was taking all the, the necessary precautions. And she cleaned up her area and, you know, she left. It wasn't until three months later she started getting abdominal distress and weight loss. And then five months after she started developing neurological symptoms. It was later revealed that this dimethylmercury can actually permeate, permeate many types of gloves, including the latex gloves, in under 15 seconds. So within 15 seconds of her dropping it onto the glove, she was already contaminated by this dimethylmercury, and she should have gone immediately to the emergency room. Five months after exposure, like I said, she had debilitating mercury intoxication. Her urine at the time had 230 micrograms per liter of mercury. Now, normal is five micro, uh, micrograms per liter of mercury, and toxic is about 50 or above. So she had a huge amount of mercury in her system. Unfortunately, she elapsed into a vegetative state and died in June of 1997, 
less than a year after her exposure. And this was a woman who made it her life's work to work with toxic metals. Looking at arsenic, it tends to be the exception of the heavy metal speciation rules. The inorganic species are actually much higher in toxicity than the organic species. So you have organic spe species like dimethyl arsenic acid, monomethyl arsenic acid, MMA, and DMA. They are 700 to 2600 milligrams per kilogram exposure, where the organic forms like, or inorganic forms, excuse me, of arsenate and arsenite are 14, 20, arsine is three milligrams per kilogram or ppm. So the inorganic forms are more toxic than the organic forms. We're gonna look at a case study now of methylmercury poisoning. <clears throat> this is a similar species to what the uh, investigator was looking at when she passed away. Uh, during the uh, 1800s, there was a village, Minamata Village, located on the western coast of Japan, and it was founded in 1889 with about 12,000 residents. Well, in 1908, the Nippon Nitrogen Fertilizer Company, later called the Chiso Corporation, built a factory in Minamata. They were manufacturing acetaldehyde. And in 1932, they were using mercury sulfate as a catalyst. By 1949, post-World War II, the village had grown to 40,000 people. And a large part of the economy of that village, almost half of its tax revenues, came from this chemical company. And it, this aldehyde product, or acetaldehyde product, was a very important component in the, plaxure, uh, the manufacture of plastics. And the plastic boom after World War II saw a great increase for the need of this product. And it went from over 200 tons to more than 45,000 tons by 1960. So you started to see, right after World War II and this acetaldehyde production, that in the village of Minimata, cats started be uh, beginning to have this odd behavior. They would start to shake, they would fall into the water, and they would drown. The locals dubbed this curious disease cat suicides, or dancing cat fever, because when the cats would shake, it would look like they were dancing. Now, by the 1950s, this strange disease started infecting the people of Minamata, especially the children. They started having problems speaking. They would stumble. They would lose fine motor control skills. And in 1956, a five-year-old girl was hospitalized and complained of numbness in her limbs and the inability to speak or eat. By 1956, four patients had been admitted to the hospital suffering from the same disease. And they would have high fever, convulsions, psychosis, coma, and then finally death. The disease was thought to be infectious, and the patients were quarantined. Families of these patients were ostracized in fear the disease was catching, and they dubbed it the Minimata disease. By 1957, the medical and scientific community was starting to believe that this disease was not infectious, but a result of poisoning. And the main culprit, they believed, was seafood caught in the Minimata Bay. The local fishermen voluntarily stopped fishing for the for the bay, but the government then eventually banned fishing in the bay. During the fall of 1958, the corporation, the chemical corporation, changed its discharge system for the plant effluent. Prior to this, the plant effluent was directly discharged into Minamata Bay, but this new system now stored the effluent in a pool near the Minamata River, and then it was later discharged. Suddenly, Minamato disease was identified near the river. And during the course of the effluent discharges from the plant, over 60 tons of methylmercury was released into the waterways. 
After three years from the start of the outbreak, the majority of researchers were able to conclude that the origin of disease was most likely on organomercury compounds. The researchers investigated the mercury distribution in Minimata Bay and discovered the concentrations of mercury at the mouth of the plant's wastewater canal were shockingly high. The levels detected in the sedim uh, sediment were two kilograms per ton, which would be a concentration considered high enough to mine or refine. And the company actually did create a division to reclaim and sell the mercury they recovered from the sludge. In 1959, a researcher at the University of Kumamoto reported that his belief that the plant effluent was the cause of the poisoning. But citing lack of proof, the investigating council ruled the poison was probably due to an unknown source of organomercury pollutants. The findings created public protest by patients and fishermen in Minamata calling for compensation for the plant effluent treatment systems to be installed at the plant. By the end of 1959, agreements had been reached for sympathy compensation. Living patients who were certified to have the disease were given the equivalent of about $275 to $925 per year. And families of patients who died from the disease were given a one-time payment of $3,000. Minamata disease was starting to fade from the public consciousness until a similar outbreak of the disease in 1965 occurred in Niigata Prefecture along the Gaano River. At that point, a different chemical factory was using a similar mercury catalyst, and it was thought responsible for the illnesses. From the fall of 1964 to the spring of 1965, cats in Nagata were observed with the dancing cat fever. Shortly afterwards, patients along the Shirinu Sea began to appear with symptoms of Minamata disease. Lawsuits were quickly filed against the company, and investigations were reopened into Minamata's pollution. In 1968, 12 years after the discovery of Minamata's disease and four months after the discontinuation of the production of acetaldehyde using a mercury catalyst, the government issued its final conclusions, stating, Minamata disease is a disease of the central nervous system, a poisoning caused by long-term consumption in large amounts of fish and shellfish from the Minamata Bay. The causative agent is methylmercury. Methylmercury produced in the acetaldehyde acetic acid facility in Shin Nian Chiso's Minamata factory was discharged into the factory wastewater. In light of the government findings, patient advocate societies asked for new compensation agreements. Meetings and arbitrations were negotiated, but in the end, many sought to bring their grievances to trial. During those trials, there was very dramatic testimony given by plant employees and managers who testified to falsification of studies and uh, denials by plant officials during the outbreaks. Many employees admitted the company put profit ahead of safety. And as of 2001, 2,265 victims were officially certified, but 10,000 people received compensation from the company and 1,784 patients had died. During the course of the certification, over 17,000 people applied for certification with the council, but there was an enormous social and economic pressure put on the citizens not to declare their symptoms and apply for compensation. The certification council was pressured to reject claimants and to minimize the economic impact on the company. Minamata disease is still a very important issue to this day in Japan, and lawsuits still continue. Most of the congenital patients exposed to the Minamata pollutants during the 1950s and 60s are now 50, in their 50s or older and reporting severe changes to their health. So this was a very uh, big case study of methyl mercury poisoning or mercury poisoning in the environment. Another study about heavy metals in the environment 
we've all heard about is arsenic and rice because arsenic is a basic food staple and it's consumed in fairly large quantities by many different cultures around the world. But in recent years, there have been ongoing studies pointing to high levels of natural arsenic or arsenic accumulation in rice. Rice is very unique for this type of bioaccumulation because the uh, arsenic is, and the, the rice cultivars, they actually naturally take up silicone along their biological pathways, which allows them to be a much stronger plant. The silicone is used to strengthen the leaves, the stems, and the husks of, against various pest attacks. This uh, has allowed the crop to become a reliable, disease-resistant cash crop. But there's a very big chemical similarity between arsenic and silicone in the flooded soil, and the same pathway then takes up the inorganic arsenic. Arsenic is naturally present in the environment, but the use of arsenic-based pesticides has greatly contributed to soil contamination. Arsenic tends to stay in the soil for long periods of time, and many of these pesticides have been banned for decades. The inorganic contaminants still remain. Arsenic and lead pesticides continue to, continue to persist in orchards, former orchard, orchards that have been turned into like housing developments, cotton and rice fields, different agricultural fields over history. The most obvious example of this legacy can be demonstrated by sample analysis of rice grown in different regions of the United States. There was a comparison study in 2007 at the University of Aberdeen, which found that rice originating in states like Arkansas and Louisiana, where there were former cotton fields now used as rice paddies, were doused once in lead arsenate. These rice samples contained two to three times more arsenic than rice grown in virgin fields in California. Arsenic is a well-known carcinogen and immunosuppressant, and it has whole uh, ill effects on the human health, and it's very well documented. It, it was once believed that the real exposure route was due to contaminated groundwater. And so the WHO and the EPA have promoted environmental regulatory limits of arsenic and water. Up until recently, though, there was not a lot of consideration given to food-derived arsenic. And new research surprisingly showed high levels of arsenic in rice. And there was adverse effects consistently being reported at lower and lower levels especially at at-risk populations, infants, children, and the elderly. The hazard of arsenic in overexposure in young children has been very well characterized. There's physical and mental uh, developmental delays, suppressed immune responses, and higher incidence of childhood and adult cancers. Unfortunately, fortified rice products have become very commonplace in a child or an infant's diet. Cereals, crackers, wafers, puffs, they're often referred to as the first foods, have been promoted by pediatricians as safe, solid foods for infants. Effectively, this results in children under the age of three consuming a higher than average amount of rice and rice products, and this causes concern. The rice products have very high levels of arsenic, and then when you compare them to uh, guidelines for arsenic in adults, the children's body weight is significantly smaller so that the impact of the arsenic limitations is much higher. Different health organizations around the world have been actively reviewing arsenic exposure and impact on children and children's products over the past few years. And the EU and the FDA have either begun to issue regulations or will be issuing regulations and guidance in the near future. The new limits and testing guidelines will prove especially valuable in the analysis of food destined for infant consumption. A study specifically examining arsenic concentration in infant formulas found that while the total concentration of arsenic was not very high 
across all the brands surveyed, the brands did, that did contain arsenic when speciated produced a result to three to seven organic to inorganic arsenic. In some cases, that ratio was one to nine. In other words, most of these brands would not be suitable for distribution under new guidelines. It's inevitable that as we de uh, develop more accurate, sensitive testing methods, our understanding of these sub substances' health effects will expand. And hopefully, manufacturers will be rewarded for their investment in these new testing methods by higher consumer confidence and less waste. And products that may have previously de been deemed inappropriate for sale under the total arsenic regulations will now be considered safe because of speciation analysis. And as consumers will be able to breathe a sigh of relief knowing that the food we're feeding our children meets all the safety standards and reflects our latest in our scientific understanding. So hopefully we've given you two uh, portraits of different heavy metal exposures that have historically been in the world and given you a better insight into why heavy metals are important and, and the understanding of heavy metals are important to us as scientists and as uh, to consumers. I hope you listen again to our podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Spec Speak Science is presented by Spec Certiprep, a leading manufacturer of certified reference materials and calibration standards for analytical spectroscopy and chromatography. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the podcast and subscribing for future installments. Similar content such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more can be found at specsertiprep.com. Thank you for listening to Spec Speak Science, and we look forward to bringing you future episodes.